0: Hello, I'm Piero Vitelli, and welcome to Dancing in the Line of Fire, a series of podcasts exploring aspects of presentation delivery. Don't forget, you're welcome to join the discussion on Twitter using the hashtag Dancing in the Line of Fire, all one word, and in the last episode I'll try to address any questions you may have had along the way. But for now, let's get going with Chapter 9, A Vocal Warm-Up. You could walk into a maternity ward anywhere in the world and you'd most likely have absolutely no idea of where in the world you were. All infants have a natural voice, which is full, rich, powerful and well-supported, and therefore they all sound very much alike. You don't need to be a parent to know that infants can scream for hours and hours without ever hurting their voices yet most adults would start to lose theirs if they did the same thing for more than about 20 seconds. Understanding why this happens and accepting that as a result we have more than one voice is key to appreciating the world of vocal control and embracing the purpose of a voice warm-up. We are born with a natural voice and, as innate mimics, quickly start to develop our accents by copying those around us. Accents are produced by a range of factors, including, but not limited to, the physical shape of the vocal tract, which is the space inside your mouth, the positions of the tongue during the creation of a speech form, the way the jaw is held, and various tensions of the body and face. Deb Roy is a Canadian researcher based at MIT who wired his house up with cameras and microphones that recorded almost everything that took place inside it for three years. It generated an enormous amount of data that could be used in a variety of ways, but in the specific attempt to understand how speech is learned, he sifted through the 90,000 hours of video and 140,000 hours of audio that this experiment produced to identify the particular sounds his son made over a six-month period whilst learning how to say the word water. I do recommend watching it, as it's one of the best TED Talks I've ever seen, but from this particular part of it, I take three lessons about voice and vocal control. First, how hard his son had to work in order to convert gaga into water, the repetition effort and sheer determination you can hear shows how hard it is to learn to speak. We all did that in our younger years, have since forgotten, but could benefit from remembering now. Secondly, he breaks down the word into syllables, first war and then tur over and over again, learning how to first organise and then refine the elements of vocal production – the tongue, the lips, the teeth – so as to make the sound crisp and clear. Third and finally, you can hear in the recording, which is chronological, that the trajectory of growth wasn't completely smooth. Towards the end of the recording, you can hear him hesitantly say water, but then he goes back to making less clear vocalizations and carries on stumbling and refining his pronunciation until the recording ends in a triumph, water. I suggest that this recording is a sobering reminder for us that using our voice effectively comes with a great deal of effort, working to perfect the different component parts and understanding that sometimes it's a case of two steps forward and one step back, which can be a bit disheartening. I grew up without a television, and so, in my early teens when one first arrived, I overindulged for a while. It was the first chance I had to study people's mouths as they speak without the embarrassment of being caught staring at them, and I developed first an awareness of, and then a passing interest in, the different physical habits people use in their voice production. For example, I can remember the newsreader, Sir Alistair Burnett, having, literally, a stiff upper lip. It didn't seem to move at all when he spoke, and, after trying to speak in a similar way, I developed the opinion that his tongue had to be working very hard inside his mouth in order for him to speak clearly despite the fixed mask of his face and his steady, measured pace probably helped, not to mention adding to the gravitas for which he was known. Joshua Rosenberg, the solicitor and legal commentator, was the BBC's legal correspondent in the 1990s, and had a very specific way of moving his jaw slightly to the left when pronouncing certain words that contained the letter S. I say had, but he's very much alive today, It's just that a half-hour's research on YouTube shows that he no longer has the habit. And that's the thing about habits. They change over time and get replaced by new ones, sometimes by conscious effort, and other times because, well, things just change. Angela Devaney was one of my voice coaches at drama school. And on day one, she told our class that, in three years, you will change the way you breathe. I remember thinking, rubbish at the time, but she was quite right. Echoing the story of Ian Waterman and his efforts to mitigate his loss of proprioception from chapter 3, the techniques she instructed me in have gently submerged from the conscious world of her two-hour voice classes, held several times a week for three years at drama school, down to my unconscious, where they now live on, as old habits that die hard, and are very helpful when I present, or record, podcasts. Most of us develop our voice through unconscious mimicry during our early years, although some then choose to alter theirs deliberately later on in life, as was famously the case with Margaret Thatcher. Our voice is the product of blending our natural voice with the particular tensions of the face and body that we've chosen. Those tensions can be anything, whether the Herculean efforts of Deb Roy's son, Alastair Burnett's calm control, the precise facial movements employed by Joshua Rosenberg, or whatever it is that you do to make your voice, they are instrumental in how we create our habitual voice, otherwise known as our accent. Those tensions, which allow our voice to work perfectly well in a normal setting, are the very things that cause our voice to become strained in an unusual setting, because perhaps a different volume or higher-than-usual output is called for, and the nerves we discussed in Chapter 7 only exacerbate the problem further. Reminding your voice of its natural state, giving it a break from its everyday habits, and allowing it to work without its usual tensions even just for a short while, can help it feel stronger, more flexible, and more likely to support you during your presentation. And that's the purpose of a vocal warm-up. The importance of breathing in voice production cannot be overstated. It is the first thing you ever did in your life, and it will be the last thing you ever do, and it needs to play a no less important role in a voice warm-up. As with the physical warm-up in the previous chapter, you'll need to find a space in which you don't mind doing exercises that might seem silly, and begin by warming up your body in much the same way as before. Remember, don't do anything that stresses or hurts you or your voice, and remember to keep as relaxed as you can. Start by waking your face up, which might sound a bit strange, but it can be a really pleasurable experience. In my voice workshop, I always encourage participants to yawn. It's one of the best things you can do. Yawning stretches your face, forces you to breathe deeply and lifts your soft palate, which is the roof of your mouth towards the back behind your hard palate. When you yawn, it makes the cavity that is your mouth bigger which creates a more resonant sound box with which to make noise. Gently massage your cheeks, using your palms to push them up, back, down and forward. Using your fingers, massage under and around your eyes, just inside your eye socket, and then across your forehead. And lastly, wake your head up by using your fingers on your scalp as though washing your hair. Yawn again, and as you do, use your hands to stroke down from your ears along your jawline and get a sense of your jaw hanging loosely open. One of the best exercises to loosen your jaw and face was demonstrated in a scene from the film The King's Speech, which portrayed the relationship between King George VI and Lionel Logue, a speech therapist who helped him cope with his stammer. Clasp your hands in front of you and try to separate the muscles of your hands, arms and shoulders from those in your neck, jaw and face. First gently, then more vigorously, shake your hands up and down as though using a cocktail shaker, and you'll be able to make your jaw flop up and down. If your physique is anything like mine, it's a great way to get each of your chins to move independently and perhaps even get your cheeks flapping around a bit too. It's also a great way to let your voice make a noise and it might sound something like this. See? It's utterly ridiculous, but it's a great exercise to do. It's also important to get your tongue working for you, which is why chewing gum is an excellent way of starting a vocal warm-up. You'll be chewing, which makes your jaw work and your lips stretch, and inside your mouth your tongue will be hard at work, pushing the gum from side to side. You also get the added benefit of looking really cool, which, just before giving a presentation, may persuade your colleagues that you're taking everything in your stride before your big moment. Just remember to take the gum out before you start. There's another good reason to chew gum before a presentation, which I learned after living on a small holding for a few years, and it's this. No animal chews when it's frightened. Often I've walked out into our field where there'll be a group of sheep quite happily chewing. They're almost always chewing. Yet if you startle them, they stop. The same is true for other animals and, so far as I know, humans. Chewing is a great way of releasing tension, warming up, and dispelling fear. Try it. You can tell me if I'm wrong. Now it's time to start regulating your breath. And the first thing you need to do is become aware of how much air your lungs can hold, which is, on average, 6 litres when full. 6 litres! That's a lot! Here's an exercise to try. Fill your lungs with air, and then start counting out loud in a normal speaking voice from one to whatever number you can reach before you run out of air. Depending on the volume you use, you'll almost certainly reach into the high 20s or low 30s, and that's plenty. Next, hold your finger about a foot away from your mouth and imagine it's a tea-light candle, and then take a lungful of air. What you're going to do is slowly blow the air towards the candle in a column of air about the size of a straw. And the objective is to control the outflow of air and regulate it so that you make the flame flicker a bit. Don't blow it out. This is not about power. It's about controlling your outbreath. It stands to reason that the more control you exert, the greater the sense of control over your breathing you'll feel. So practice it. Do it again, but this time let your lips close and start to produce a hum. You can make the hum loud or soft. You can vary the pitch and you can make it swoop up high or drop down low. All the time you'll be accessing the ways in which you naturally resonate. Blow raspberries with your tongue or mouth. Use your breath to make a hoarse whinnying sound. Recite tongue twisters like red leather lorry, yellow leather lorry, or unique New York, or Peter Piper picked a peck of pickled peppers, or the lips, the teeth and the tip of the tongue. All these things will help you exercise your voice and gain clarity and diction. There are so many vocal warm-up videos online that you might use, and all of them are really helpful. And if you can work out what a peck of pickled peppers actually is, so much the better. Albert Morabian, Professor Emeritus at the University of California in Los Angeles, is, amongst other things, known for the 7%, 38%, 55% rule, which suggests that when communicating attitudes or feelings – The listener derives the meaning of what is being communicated in the following proportions. 7% comes from the content of what is actually being said. 38% from the voice and vocal tones being used to say it. And 55% from the body language of the person who is saying it. There are many arguments for and against this model. For a start, you can't see my body language right now. So, is my ability to communicate somehow reduced? That said, I think it can be useful when considering congruence in communication. That is to say, that our voice and body seem congruent with what we're saying, as when they aren't, it can sometimes be quite obvious. My wife and I often know when the other isn't happy just by our tone. Even when we've just said, ''No, really, I'm fine.'' The student slumped in the back row of the lecture theatre probably isn't agreeing with me when he says, yeah, right. And the presenter who says, I'm really happy to be here today, possibly isn't. Now, I don't know if Morabian's percentages are accurate, but equally, I'm not sure that it matters. Regardless of the actual percentages, I would argue that unless the content, voice and body language are all aligned, the message is likely to be undermined in some way. Physically and vocally warming up before a presentation is, once again, a case of a familiar activity needing to be performed in an unusual setting but for some, it will remain a source of too much discomfort or embarrassment to do. Luckily, your body has a memory, so you could warm up on the morning of the day you present, perhaps by going to the gym, and some of that warmth will last until you start, but it won't be as good as it could be without some form of top-up at the last moment. Perhaps, like looking cool while chewing gum, it might help you to find an activity that helps you warm up whilst not actually looking like it. Many years ago, a friend told me a story about their mother when she had been young. A woman in the prime of her life during the 1930s, she had been a keen exerciser and reveled in the ability to put her body through its paces. Back then, it was a time when gyms, not to mention female athletes, were less common, indeed accepted, than they are today, and she'd struggled to find an outlet for her need. Apparently, she was often to be found on her local high street, with raincoat and rolled up newspaper in hand, running for a trolley bus that she always just failed to catch. On a few occasions, I have suddenly remembered that I've forgotten something in my car right before a presentation, and I've had to rush from a fifth floor office down to the car park and back up again in order to get my blood flowing, my energy raised, and my voice working. If content, voice, and body language are to be aligned, then each needs to be equally prepared, warmed up, and focused. And anything that allows you to do that will be the perfect warm-up for you. Thank you for listening, and I hope you've enjoyed this podcast. Please do join the conversation on Twitter using the hashtag DancingInTheLineOfFire, all one word, and help shape the content of the last episode with your comments. If you want to find out more about the work I do, then please visit island41.com